Greetings, kind listeners. Mike Lawrence here with episode two of Let Me Tell You a Story. How's that for a snappy title for a podcast? Okay, today I'm going to read the first scene from my upcoming novel, Unchosen. But before I get to that, I thought I'd provide some historical context for what's going on. So one of the things I discovered while researching the subject of Parajmos is just how disjointed the bureaucracy was in Nazi Germany. Lots of overlap, lots of duplication, and lots of competition. The branch of government that affected the lives of so many, of course, was the Schutzstaffel, more commonly known as the SS. This organization was further broken down into several divisions, the Gestapo, the Kriminalpolizei, the Allgemeine SS, and the Waffen-SS. The Gestapo and the Kriminalpolizei, or Kripo, were part of the Reich Main Security Office, headed up by Reinhard Heydrich, that famous SS who was the architect of the Wannsee Conference and assassinated by the Czech resistance. How all of this pertained to gypsies at the time was the implementation of the Nazi policy regarding these nomadic people, which was not as clear-cut as the policy against the Jewish population. While the policy against Jewish people was firmly rooted in racist doctrine, the crusade against the gypsies was based more on their lifestyle, which meant that for a time, a gypsy could improve their chances of survival by abandoning their lifestyle and taking up a sedentary lifestyle in one of the uh, major cities in Germany. They could settle down, get a job, get a residence, that sort of thing. However, as time went on, this policy morphed, probably inevitably, towards one that was based on more racial considerations. Early on, Himmler had the notion that pure-blooded gypsies, primarily from the Sinti clans in Germany, had an Aryan lineage based on their roots going all the way back to India. Although this did not result in their being treated as full German citizens, it did spare the lives of many prior to 1943. A poorly implemented program allowed gypsies to be designated as pure-blooded and assigned a certificate officially attaching them to a clan. Gypsies so designated were exempt from deportation and evacuation, but were still commonly herded into camps awaiting further disposition. Uh, one notion was that they would be uh, put on reservations, uh, similar to the Native American reservations in the United States. The treatment of gypsies, even those who managed to obtain a coveted clan card, was not homogenous. While many card-carrying gypsies were nevertheless evacuated to Auschwitz, others managed to escape the purge and even applied for and received clan cards as late as 1945. Results varied by region and province. It was very much a haphazard administration, and the luck of the draw was a major factor in determining if you survived as a gypsy in Nazi Germany. As to the applications for clan membership, this was ostensibly left up to an appointed council of nine elder gypsies, but this really didn't last all that long. Only months after their appointment, Himmler issued his proclamation ordering the evacuation of mixed blood, or Mischling, gypsies to Auschwitz. The practical reality was that applications for exemption as a clan member were handled mostly by the local Kripo offices. Even though there's no historical record of bribery and corruption, how could there be? It only makes sense that when dealing with something that could literally save your life, it surely was obtainable at the right price in at least some Kripo offices. And that's where our story begins. In early May 1942, the postman walked quietly up the front steps of his townhouse in a small village near the Ruhr, forcing his feet to slide along casually, as if he were only tired, as if there was nothing to hide. He groped for his own front door because the porch light was still dark. 
He glanced at the window above the meager awning over the porch to see that she hadn't lit the kerosene lamp for the back window just yet. The murmuring sick yellow of light that would later spill across the room and out the front window always made him feel sick. He huffed out a short breath, grateful for a quiet stomach. And then he frowned, because he worried about the money. Out of habit, he opened the door slowly and poked his nose inside as if it weren't his own home. Because on those nights when the lamp was lit, it really wasn't his own home, and he didn't want to startle whoever might be inside. Patrina, he whispered. The gentle voice of his twelve-year-old daughter sang out from the kitchen, Here, Papa. She stepped out from the kitchen, carrying a plate with a steaming potato, sauerkraut, and a slice of bread. There would be meat the next night, except they would still eat bread and potatoes, because he could sell the meat. Her gray dress was frayed at the hem, which had crept another inch or two towards her knees in the past year. He frowned, because it had been six months now since he had planned to buy her a new one. Nothing fancy, but the demands on his meager wages had ruled out even one of the cheap field dresses the old matron across town sewed from what he still insisted was burlap. A black scarf adorned Petrina's head, the front banding over the top of her head in a neat fold that brought out the arch in her brow. Her skin was a darker shade of olive than his own, and glistened softly by the light of the lone candle on the small circular table where she set down his plate. The table had worn down to a half-painted state, dry graying shards of wood curling up from its surface. He unshouldered his mailbag, sat down on one of the two rickety wooden chairs at the table, and stared at the empty fireplace. As it was late spring, they wouldn't need a fire for several more months. By then, he hoped, Petrina would be able to go outside with him, and they would be able to wander into the forest across from their back door and collect firewood together. Petrina sat down in the other chair and smiled sheepishly. He knew she wanted to make him more for supper than bread and potatoes, and maybe someday she would. Get the jar, he said, then chomped down on a forkful of steaming potato and sucked in a quick breath. Ow! Hot! You do that every time, Papa. You need to wait for it to cool. Petrina stood up and walked to the shelf standing outside the kitchen. She looked over her shoulder and then reached up to pull the jar down from the shelf. She carried it with both hands, a chalice to some altar, and then lay it gently on the table. There were a few folded up bills, but mostly it was full of coins that covered the ring and necklace lying at the bottom of the jar. Her grandmother had given her the ring and the necklace. The rest she and her father had scrimped together for the past year. He looked sideways at the jar, gnawing slowly on the last of his bread. He swallowed, took a breath, and let his shoulders slump. It's not enough. He leaned back in the chair and stared at the ceiling. Petrina hung her head and stared at the floor. They let the silence settle between them until all they could hear was the sound of each other breathing. There will be more tonight, she said. He clenched his fists, hoping she wouldn't notice, knowing she would. He sensed an urgency wafting through the room, as did she. They could never explain to people how they knew these things. It lived and breathed and slithered, a ghost shimmering just on the edge of their own consciousness. And it told them things that were as certain as mathematical equations, but only to those who could feel it. A huff of wind scattering auburn leaves along the road had told them to abandon their Vardo and quietly slip into the outskirts of Munich, where he got his first sedentary job in a warehouse, delivering VE-301 Volksenfänger radios to department stores so the Fuhrer could visit every good German's living room at will. 
A brown shirt collaring a Jewish man who had eluded the party's deportation in 1938 was his cue to again slip away, this time traveling north to a sanctuary of sorts where the vortex of war met the grim determination of those few who knew better. By all outward appearances, it was just another village, prostrate to the will of the Fuhrer. But they had sent something else as they came into town one early morning. The waters of the National Socialist tirade had flowed around the village like a stone in a river, a small island of paws, and an otherwise mad world. To be sure, it still had its cripo and rules and warnings. People dutifully listened to their radios. The young boys attended their Hitler Jungen meetings religiously and beat their drums as they marched through the streets singing songs of sacrifice and glory. Two men from the Allgemeine Schutzstaffel stood guard outside the gypsy camp that lay far enough away from the town that its inhabitants were easily ignored. Because of these things, nobody could really see what lay beneath the surface. Sanity. But now they both sensed that it was a fluid thing, air swirling around itself to collapse and rise into the storm again, gone and thunderous all at once. We don't have much time, he said, still staring at the ceiling. I know, Papa. Don't you have a plate? he asked. I've already eaten today. You're a growing girl. You need... Petrina shook her head and smiled. You need your strength for all the walking you do. What she didn't tell him, what he could tell because she was still standing between him and the small kitchen and its bare pantry, was that there was no more food in the house. He would have to buy some the next day. Freedom was one thing. Starving was another. He looked at his daughter, her almond eyes glinting with a promise to always remember. Even though she was just a girl, her mouth was full and succulent in a way that could draw men to their doom, or to eternal bliss, or both. He nudged his plate away as he thought of all the men that he knew that saw her just that way. I'm sorry you couldn't be a little girl a while longer. Better to grow old, she said. He allowed a hint of a smile. You're too young to be so smart. And yet, here I am, still. And yet, here you are, still. He reached over and took her hand. Her fingers were tender and clumsy with innocence, a lie he knew she saved especially for him. He smiled sadly. Thank God, he said. You have been listening to Episode 2 of Let Me Tell You a Story, copyright 2019 by Michael J. Lawrence, all rights reserved. Please join us next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time for Episode 3. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>